Should your patient be counting their macros? This has become a widely popular saying among the fitness world. Counting your macros is really just a trendy way to say counting calories, because essentially that's all you're doing. The funny thing is that calculating a patient's macros isn't anything new. Dietitians have been doing this for a long time, specifically for a critically ill patient requiring two feedings or for elite athletes. But it's not really common practice for the general public because for some, it can become addicting, and for others, it can feel too restrictive and complicated. Furthermore, weight loss can be achieved without ever tracking your calories. However, for today's episode, you'll learn what the three macronutrients are and how to calculate them for your patient, step by step. You're listening to the Exam Room Nutrition Podcast mini-series called A Provider's Guide to Helping Patients Lose Weight. I'm your host, Colleen Sloan. I'm an RD turned PA, and my goal is to give you the nutrition education you never had in school to help you be a more confident, compassionate clinician. This is part four of a 10-part series, and last week we discussed ways you can help your patient navigate stress and emotional triggers that derail their health journey. If you would like my notes on this series to follow along with, I have created a companion PDF for you that summarizes each and every episode. You can find that for free at examroomnutrition.com slash weight loss. That's examroomnutrition.com slash weight loss. So what does it mean to count your macros? In the most basic sense, it involves breaking down your total daily calorie needs into individual macronutrients, which your body needs in order to function properly. There are three macronutrients carbohydrates, protein, and fats. How much of each macronutrient a person needs will vary based on their activity level, gender, weight, age, and medical conditions. So let's look at each macronutrient individually in detail. Let's start with carbohydrates. And man, oh man, has diet culture made us fear carbs. It's all too common to hear people say, oh yeah, my doctor told me to cut out carbs or I'm avoiding carbs. But is that actually necessary for fat loss? The research says no. What's necessary for fat loss is a sustained calorie deficit, regardless of what diet your patient is on. There's a plethora of research out there that consistently shows weight loss is achievable regardless of the diet that the patient follows. But why do people lose more weight when they stop eating carbs? It just seems like the weight comes off so quickly. So carbohydrates are stored in the body as glycogen, and in order to be stored, every one molecule of glycogen needs three molecules of water. So when carb intake decreases, people will notice a change in their body weight, but this isn't necessarily fat loss. It's just a change in the amount of fluid your body has. Additionally, if the patient is starting to weight train, which is highly recommended, fluid can be shifted toward the muscles for tissue repair, which leads the patient to believe that they aren't losing weight. But in actuality, they are because they're gaining muscle mass while losing fat mass, which is exactly what we want. This is why, as discussed in episode two, it is so important to measure things besides the patient's weight and their BMI to fully understand changes in their body composition. All right, back to carbohydrates. Carbs are the primary energy source for your brain, muscles, and nervous system. We need them for hormone, brain, and thyroid function, energy, sports performance, and digestion. They include sugars, starches, and fiber, and can be broken into simple carbs and complex carbs. Simple carbs like sweets, white bread, rice, and table sugar are broken down quickly by the body. They don't keep you full for very long, 
and they lead to rapid blood sugar spikes, especially if eaten alone. Complex carbohydrates like fruits and vegetables, whole grains and beans are broken down more slowly, and as a result, they promote longer satiety and more stable blood sugar levels. Most complex carbohydrates have other nutritional benefits like B vitamins, iron, and fiber. So if you hear a quote-unquote expert telling people to avoid fruit because it has too much sugar, run. This is inaccurate and harmful, and I'm happy to send you a plethora of studies to prove it. The issue most people have with carbs is they overdo it with the processed refined carbs, like cakes, cookies, breads, etc., because these tend to be easy to overeat due to their convenience, and duh, they're delicious. And patients actually underdo the fibrous carbs like fruit, veggies, and whole grains. Therefore, giving carbs a bad rap. Let's move on to everyone's favorite macronutrient, protein. This guy has also been featured in a lot of research over the last few years regarding daily requirements and timing. Just like so much about nutrition, how much protein someone needs truly depends on the person. That's why if we are getting to the specifics of calculating how many grams of protein a person should be eating, you really should be referring them to a registered dietitian. But here's some protein basics for you. A protein is made up of one or more long folded chains of amino acids, each called a polypeptide, whose sequences are determined by the DNA sequence of the protein encoding gene. Proteins provide structure and support for your cells, are critical to forming your muscles, skin, hair, nails, bones, and enzymes. Protein also plays an important role in satiety. Proteins are made up of 20 amino acids, and while the body can make some of them, nine are considered essential or indispensable, meaning your body can't produce them on its own and they must be consumed through food. Animal sources of protein include meat, dairy, and eggs. Common plant sources of protein include beans, nuts, seeds, tofu, and whole grains. While most animal protein sources contain all nine essential amino acids, most plant sources don't. However, if you consume a variety of plant sources throughout the day, they can function as complementary. I have an entire episode dedicated to plant-based eating. If you wanted to learn more about that, you can find that in episode 15 titled Fueling Your Workout, Sports Nutrition Tips for Plant-Based Eating. All right, moving on to dietary fat. Just like carbs, fat has fallen in and out of popularity for years. And social media is full of opinions right now on saturated fat and seed oils and their effect on overall health and inflammation. Now, we won't be getting into the debate of seed oils right now, but I may do an episode in the future reviewing the literature on that topic because I know Instagram is getting pretty spicy about it. So send me a DM at exam room nutrition and let me know if you'd like me to cover that topic. Fats are essential for cell function, energy, organ protection, satiety, insulation and temperature regulation, hormone production, and absorption of vitamins A, D, E, and K. The major thing to focus on with fats is the quality. Fats can be categorized as saturated, unsaturated, or trans fat. And I want to quickly break those down for you. Saturated fats are solid at room temperature and are primarily found in animal products like butter, fatty cuts of meat and cheese, but some plant foods are also high in saturated fats like coconut, coconut oil, palm oil, and palm kernel oil. In the United States, our primary sources of saturated fats are pizza and cheese, whole milk, butter, and dairy desserts, meat like sausage and bacon, cookies and other desserts, and fast food items. The Dietary Guidelines for Americans recommends getting less than 10% of calories each day from saturated fat, 
And actually, the American Heart Association goes even further, recommending limiting saturated fat to no more than 7% of calories. Now, emerging evidence has shown that saturated fat is not as bad as we once thought, but the literature clearly shows that unsaturated fat remains the healthiest type of fat. Interestingly, cutting back on saturated fat will likely have no benefit if a person replaces saturated fat with simple carbohydrates. So be careful when telling your patient to limit their fat intake if you aren't telling them what to replace it with. We want to encourage limiting saturated fat and replacing it with polyunsaturated fats. Which brings us to our second type of fat, unsaturated fats. These are most commonly found in plant foods like oils, avocados, olives, nuts, and seeds. Unsaturated fats, which are liquid at room temperature, are considered beneficial fats because they can improve blood cholesterol levels, decrease inflammation, and stabilize heart rhythms. Unsaturated fats can be further categorized into monounsaturated and polyunsaturated. So some examples of monounsaturated fats are found in olive, peanut, and canola oils, avocados, nuts like almonds, hazelnuts, and pecans, and seeds like pumpkin seeds and sesame seeds. Polyunsaturated fats can be found in sunflower, corn, soybean, and flaxseed oils, walnuts, fish, and flax seeds. Now, I want to briefly discuss omega-3s and omega-6s here because they actually fall under polyunsaturated fats. So fun fact, if you want to geek out with me, the term omega-3 and omega-6 don't signify anything special. They actually describe the position of the first carbon-to-carbon double bond in the fat's backbone. This influences the shape of the fat molecule, which affects its function in the body. The benefits of omega-3 are well known. They help protect the heart from arrhythmias, they ease inflammation, prevent clot formation, and lower the levels of triglycerides. Good sources of omega-3s are fish, flax seeds, and walnuts. Omega-6 fatty acids are where the internet is freaking out about, and I can't help but touch on it briefly. Their main issue is that the body can convert the most common omega-6 fatty acid, linolenic acid, into another fatty acid called arachidonic acid. An arachidonic acid is a building block for molecules that can promote inflammation, blood clotting, and the constriction of blood vessels. But the body also converts arachidonic acid into molecules that calm inflammation and fight blood clots. But a plethora of well-documented research shows that omega-6 fats are not only safe, but are beneficial for the heart and circulation. Sources of omega-6 fatty acids are safflower oil, sunflower oil, corn oil, soybean oil, sunflower seeds, walnuts, and pumpkin seeds. Most Americans actually eat more omega-6 fats than omega-3 fats, so encouraging a balance is a good idea by suggesting that patients add some extra omega-3s. And now finally, on to the third type of fat, trans fats. These fats are made by heating liquid vegetable oils in the presence of hydrogen gas and a catalyst, a process called hydrogenation, which makes them more stable and less likely to become rancid. This process also converts the oil into a solid, which makes them function as margarine or shortening. They can also withstand repeated heating without breaking down, making them ideal for frying fast food. For a long time, only dedicated diet detectives could determine if a food had trans fat due to tricky labeling. Buyers had to search for partially hydrogenated oil or vegetable shortening on the nutrition facts label to determine if a food product had trans fat in it. However, research in the 1990s revealed its harmful health effects, and a series of policy changes nearly eradicated artificial trans fat from the U.S. food supply by around 2018. 
Partially hydrogenated oil is not the only source of trans fats in our diets. Trans fats are also naturally found in beef fat and dairy fat in small amounts. Now we know that trans fats are the worst type of fat for the heart, blood vessels, and rest of the body. They have a harmful effects in even small amounts. If you're multitasking, come back to me and listen to this statistic. For each additional 2% of calories from trans fat consumed daily, the risk of coronary heart disease increases by 23%. Crazy, right? Trans fat raises LDL and lowers HDL, creates inflammation, which can lead to heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and other chronic conditions, and they contribute to insulin resistance. So there's your summary of dietary fat, but here's the take-home point. Recommend your patients cut back on red meat to incorporate more fish, nuts, and seeds, and replace butter when cooking with a variety of liquid vegetable oils, such as olive, canola, and avocado oil. So there's your flyover macronutrient basics. And now that you have a better understanding of what they are and their role in the body, let's get to why you're here. How do I calculate the breakdown of macros for my patient? Now, as I stated in the beginning, in my opinion, following a diet based on macros is not ideal for every patient. And it is absolutely contraindicated for those with a history of an eating disorder or any current disordered eating. Also, I'm just being realistic here, but it can be very time-consuming, as you'll see, for you to do the calculations in the clinic. The major purpose of counting macros should be for your patient to learn how much they're currently eating versus how much their body actually needs. You can encourage your patients to use an online tracker like Chronometer, MyFitnessPal, or the Lose It app to determine the daily breakdown of protein, carbs, and fats, and to help keep them accountable and honest with their macro intake. All right, we're gonna be doing some math next. So if you wanna grab a pen and paper, that might help you follow along. Otherwise, if you're driving, be sure to listen to this part again when you get home. Now, please use this as a general guide. And I cannot stress how important working with a registered dietitian is. Nutrient calculations are not as black and white as one would think because the human body is an amazingly complicated, beautiful thing. The macronutrients have been nicely broken down for us by the 2020-2025 Dietary Guidelines for Americans, which recommends that 45 to 65% of calories come from carbohydrates, 20 to 35% from fat, and 10 to 35% from protein. As you can tell, these are ranges, and where a patient falls within these ranges depends on health conditions, activity levels, and overall goals. Now, when calculating macros, there's a three-step process. Step one, calculate the patient's estimated calorie needs. Step two, break down their total calorie needs into calories for each macronutrient using the percentage ranges from the dietary guidelines above. Step number three, calculate how many grams of each macronutrient they can consume. All right, are you thinking, Colleen, how do I know how many calories my patient needs? And this is where it can get complicated and why I recommend working with a dietitian. But For the sake of being thorough, here is a quick overview of calorie estimation. Your basal metabolic rate, or BMR, is the number of calories your body uses to stay alive. Keep in mind that your BMR includes only the energy, or calories, necessary for basic, life-sustaining functions. It doesn't include additional calories needed for daily activities such as walking, moving, or exercising. Your BMR can be calculated using direct calorimetry, indirect calorimetry, or a quick math equation, which there are a few different equations, but most commonly used is the Mifflin-St. Gior equation, which you can Google. 
but stay with me because I'm going to break this down for you. While it's useful as a starting point, your BMR is not the number of calories your body needs in a day. To calculate your total daily energy expenditure or the total calories you need each day, you need to multiply the BMR by an activity factor. Activity factors range from 1.2 for sedentary to 1.9 for very active individuals. This number will give you a general idea of how many calories your body needs per day to maintain your current weight. So to make your life easier, I have included a link to an online calculator through Medscape that you can use to just plug in your patient's info to make calculating their baseline calories way easier. You can thank me later. Now, since this series is talking about nutrition for weight loss, ideally patients should aim for 0.5 to 1 kilogram or 1 to 2 pounds of weight loss per week. However, as we'll see, even this is complicated. In 1958, a researcher named Dr. Max Wisnowski calculated that one pound of fat stores approximately 3,500 kilocalories of energy, which is where we get the idea that one pound of fat is roughly equal to 3,500 calories. So the thinking goes, in order to lose one pound of fat, you would need to accumulate a calorie deficit of 3,500 calories. Cut 500 calories per day, and that's about a pound per week. Over the course of one year, that would equal 52 pounds. Now I'm going to pause here because the 3,500 calories per pound rule isn't perfect. It fails to account for dynamic changes in energy balance that occur during a dietary intervention. Because of this, some say the 3,500 calorie per pound approach significantly overestimates how much weight people will lose over time, which sets them up for disappointment when weight loss slows or stops altogether. Weight adaptations can happen over time as weight loss isn't a linear event over time. And how your body burns calories depends on a number of factors, including the type of food you eat, your body's metabolism, and even the type of organisms living in your gut. Pretty cool, huh? Now, as a patient starts to lose weight, their body will actually burn less energy because a lighter version of themselves requires less energy than a heavier version of themselves. Despite ongoing debates, what truly counts for fat loss is both the total calories you consume and the kinds of foods you choose, in addition to exercise. However, don't be surprised if the weight comes off more gradually than anticipated. Patience and consistency are vital for our weight loss success. Other mathematical formulas have been proposed to more accurately predict the rate of weight loss in patients. However, for simplicity's sake, we are going to base our calculations in the example off of the 3,500 calorie rule. All right, back to our math lesson. Here's an example so all of this can come together. If you calculate that someone needs 2,400 calories at baseline, then you can suggest they consume about 400 calories less every day for a total of 2,000 calories daily, which will result in a target loss of one to two pounds of weight per week. Now we have completed step one. Let's move on to step two which is where we need to break down the total calorie needs for each macronutrient using the percentage ranges from the dietary guidelines. Using our example patient who we suggest consuming 2,000 calories daily, let's calculate the number of calories they need from each macronutrient. Starting with carbohydrates first. Pro tip, I usually calculate carbs first, then protein, and then the rest I usually leave left over for fat. Remember that the 2020-2025 Dietary Guidelines for Americans recommends that 45-65% to of calories in an adult's diet come from carbohydrates. So let's say we aim to have 60% of the calories from carbohydrates and you need 2,000 calories per day. 
So that means you need about 1,200 calories from carbohydrates. Next, let's calculate protein. Remember the range for protein is 10 to 35%, which is a pretty big range. For someone following 2,000 calories, that would be between 200 to 700 calories. And the remainder would be left over for fat. So if we have 1,200 from carbs and 500 from protein, this leaves you with around 300 calories for fat, which is actually a little under the recommended 20 to 35% from fat. But as you can see, you can kind of play around with the numbers as needed. Step two is complete. Moving on to step three, we need to determine how many grams each macronutrient provides. To do this, you need to know that carbs and protein have four calories per gram, and fats, there are nine calories per gram. So in our example, if 1,200 calories come from carbohydrates, you need to divide that by four to give you 300 grams. Protein would be our range of 200 to 700 calories divided by four, so 50 to 175 grams per day. And fats, we would divide 300 by nine to get 33 grams per day. Now, a quick note here, for weight loss, it can be beneficial to start on the lower end of the range for carbohydrates. You can go even as low as 150 grams per day. However, going much below that can increase the risk of nutrient deficiencies, hunger cravings, and mental fatigue. And please remind your patients that carbs are not the enemy, and they should be enjoying carbs from fruits, veggies, and whole grains. Now, I want to back up and have a little discussion about protein calculations. Protein is another macronutrient that has been researched quite a bit lately, and the guidelines are shifting. Another method for determining protein intake is to calculate the grams of protein per kilogram of body weight based on the patient's activity level. Now, the recommended dietary allowance, or RDA, for protein remains at 0.8 grams per kilogram per day. However, for patients looking to lose weight and gain muscle, new research shows this amount is not nearly enough to preserve muscle mass which sadly decreases over time starting at age 30. But these findings have not yet been translated into clear recommendations by authorities. However, new studies are suggesting a higher protein intake, anywhere from 1.2 to 2 grams per kilogram based on goals, activity level, and overall health status and medical conditions. Most registered dietitians can agree on recommending between 1.2 and 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram per day. So using this calculation for our patient, let's say they weigh 175 pounds. This would come out to about 95 to 127 grams per day, which is actually somewhere between what we calculated for the 10 to 35% of total calories. So to recap, our patient needs about 2,000 calories a day, of which 1,200 calories come from carbs, or 300 grams, 500 calories come from protein, or 125 grams, and 300 calories from fat or 33 grams. So there you have it. But as you can see, actually doing the calculation is somewhat time-consuming, and it will vary from patient to patient. Furthermore, there's an additional piece of education required once you determine how many macros they should be eating, and that's how to count how many grams are in a serving of the food they're actually eating. You could tell them, okay, eat this many grams of carbs, protein, and fat, but they need to know how to calculate that related to what they're actually eating. For example, how much grams is in this piece of chicken that I'm eating? All right, deep breath. I know today was a lot, but thanks for sticking with me. And I really hope I cleared up any confusion surrounding macros. Be sure to check the show notes because I've included a ton of helpful resources for you and your patients, including a ton of articles since nutrition has become quite controversial these days. In the next episode, we'll be discussing different diet options 
and why one plan might work better for one patient than another. I'll also review a recent article that's hot off the press from the U.S. News listing the best diets for 2024. I'll see you next week. And as a quick reminder, if you would like my notes on this series, I have created a companion PDF for you that summarizes each and every episode. You can find that for free at examroomnutrition.com slash weight loss. That's examroomnutrition.com slash weight loss.